Father, that, that him uh, asks us a probing question. Um, we must confess that, that there is nothing at all that we can do to repay you for what you've done for us. That's not what that hymn is calling us to do. It's not telling us to try and repay what you did for us. That would be impossible. There's no way that we can uh, buy for ourselves the great gift of salvation that you have worked on our behalf. But what that hymn is calling us to do is to see what you have given so freely for us and out of hearts full of thanksgiving to to live our lives for you uh, because we have acknowledged that you are our Savior and you are our Lord and you have freely ransomed us if we have put our trust in you. And though uh, there is nothing that we can do to buy back one ounce of what you've done for us, yet uh, it is our joy to, to live the remainder of our life on your behalf because you are Lord and you've delivered us from our slavery to sin and we are free to to serve you for the rest of our lives rather than, than those deeds of darkness of which we are now ashamed. Lord, so help us to do that. May you use your word even this morning to build us up in the faith and to strengthen within us a desire to live for you. Um, please bless our time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, take your Bibles and open up to the book of Galatians. We're going to start working through this, this letter that Paul wrote uh, over the next probably few months it takes to get us through this letter. <clears throat> and you want to keep your finger in Galatians because we're just going to, I'm going to, in this sermon, give you just an overview of the book. Um, we're not really trying to work our way through any part of it, rather at the outset, I'm trying to help you get your arms around the book so that you're better positioned to understand it as we walk through it. So we're just going to kind of be bouncing around to different passages of this letter. And you can also put your finger in Acts starting in chapter 13 because we're going to bounce around in the book of Acts as well. So we're beginning our study of Paul's letter to the churches. Of Galatia, And I'm excited to work through this portion of Scripture with you because, personally, this book has had a very big impact on my own walk with Christ. And another person, a far more famous person, who, whom this book had a big impact on is Martin Luther. He was, of course, the man God used to spark the Protestant Reformation into a, a raging fire. And this is what he said of this book this letter to the Galatians. Quote, The epistle to the Galatians is my dear epistle. I have put my confidence in it. It is my Katie von Bora. Unquote. Who's Katie von Bora? That was Martin Luther's beloved wife. He felt about this letter the way he felt about his wife. His wife who was very dear to him. His wife whom he put much confidence in. That is how he came to feel about this portion of scripture. <clears throat> and when you consider Martin Luther's testimony, you can understand why he would treasure this book in particular. He was a German monk in the Roman Catholic Church. He lived in the 1500s. And Roman Catholicism had lost the gospel. And they were teaching a Christ plus works religion. 
According to Roman Catholicism's system of belief, in order to be saved, you have to believe in Jesus and do good works. You have to do both, believe in Jesus and do good works in order to gain salvation. In other words, Jesus gets you most of the way saved, but then you have to complete his work by doing your good works in order to actually be saved. And Martin Luther, living under that teaching and teaching it himself as a monk in the Roman Catholic Church, he was a man who was intensely aware of his own sinfulness. So he understood that under this system that he was serving as a monk of the Roman Catholic Church, he understood that it would be impossible for him to escape the wrath of God. He knew he could not be good enough. However much Jesus got him to the, the, the however close Jesus got him to salvation, Martin Luther was too much of a sinner to make up the rest of the distance. He knew he couldn't do it. And that understanding drove him into deep despair. And he was very angry with God, saying, how can you hold out before me a way of salvation knowing that I can't, I can't make it? And he was embittered within him because of this impossible system that he was underneath. So he sat there under that despair until he discovered that what Rome was teaching concerning salvation was not what the Bible was teaching. The Bible teaches a Christ alone salvation. The Bible teaches that God gives us his righteousness as a gift. He understands that we can't work our own righteousness. We've already fallen short of that. The Bible teaches he holds out his righteousness through his son to us as a gift and that he rescues us from his wrath through faith alone in Christ alone. Works has nothing, forms no basis of our justification. And nowhere is this explained more thoroughly than in Paul's letter to the Galatians, which is why Martin Luther loved it so much. It declared to him the freedom that he had from condemnation through Christ. This book declares very loudly that freedom, very clearly that freedom from the law's condemnation through faith in Jesus. And this, this book has become very dear to me as well. I had my own sort of Martin Luther experience in my early 20s is when I would say that I came to saving faith in Christ. It's then when I began believing the Lord enough to, to follow him. And I understood that my salvation had been given to me through faith alone in Christ alone, that I hadn't done any work to gain this salvation. Jesus had done the work for me. But I fell into thinking that though I had been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, I had to keep myself in salvation through my own works. That's the lie I fell into thinking. I had fallen into the ditch of legalism, thinking that I had to, by the law, keep my righteous standing with God. I had placed myself under the law. I had become like the Pharisees, Remember what Jesus said about them? He said that they tithed mint and dill and cumin, these, these spices, and yet they have neglected the weightier provision of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And my swallowing this lie that my, my standing in salvation depended on my works, it warped the way I thought 
And I began to obsess over the littlest things in order to make sure that I was keeping God's law perfectly so that I could maintain my salvation. It's just some examples. If I saw a piece of trash lying in the road, I felt I had to pull over and pick it up, even if it was not very safe to do so. Because in my mind, my twisted way of thinking, that was the right thing to do. And what does James 4 verse 17 say? To the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, it is sin to him. Now I'm guessing James wasn't talking about picking up pieces of trash out of the middle of the road. But that's the way my twisted thinking was leading me to under this, this weight of lawfulness that I had taken upon myself. I even began to analyze the things I was eating because I knew my body belonged to the Lord. I needed to honor him even in the things I ate. But again, in my twisted way of thinking, I began to obsessively read food ingredient labels and I would avoid anything that I suspected might be unhealthy. And if I remember right, my weight dropped to about 130 pounds. I could see my ribs and my spine through my skin. To give some perspective, in high school I weighed 170. Right now I weigh 175. So I was 40 pounds lighter when I was going through that legalistic phase. Needless to say, the way I was living was not sustainable. And like Luther, I was exhausted. I was full of despair. I couldn't, I couldn't keep the law enough to maintain my own salvation. But then God brought me to this book the book of Galatians. And as I studied this letter, God removed the burden of the law that I had placed back upon myself. He showed me that not only was I initially saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but that he was keeping me saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Never does my salvation begin to depend upon my works. And Galatians showed me that. It freed me. It transformed my life. I could say about this book, this is my Whitley Dane Curtis of the Bible. And my hope is that the Lord would use this book as we study it together to, to continue to transform not only me, but each one of us, to give us a, a great love for the gospel that is proclaimed in this letter. Now, to begin to help us understand this letter, I want to give some background, background of how these churches came into being. So the first thing I want you to notice, if you're in Galatians, look at chapter 1, verse 2. Paul addresses this letter to who? He says, to the churches of Galatia. Now, unlike Paul's letter to the believers in Rome, or to the church at Corinth, or to the saints at Ephesus, or the believers in Philippi, or to the saints and brothers in Colossae, or to the church in Thessalonians, in this letter, Paul is not writing to a single church, and he's not writing to believers in a single city. He's writing to, as it says in verse 2, churches, plural. And the churches are said to be of Galatia. Galatia was not a city. Galatia was a Roman province that contained many cities. It covered a broader area than a city did. So Paul, in this letter, he's writing to the churches that were found in multiple cities within the province of Galatia. On the outlines, I put some maps on the back. 
and one of the, the maps is kind of zoomed out so that you can see the whole region, and another map is zoomed in so that you can see Paul's first missionary journey. And I wanted to give you those maps so you can see where Galatia is. And if you didn't grab an outline, the back of your Bible probably has something like that. But if you look at one of those maps, you'll see that in Paul's day, the province of Galatia sat between the Mediterranean Sea and the Black Sea. So Mediterranean South, Black Sea North, and the province extended almost to touching both seas. To the east of Galatia was the Roman province of Cappadocia, and to the west of Galatia was the Roman province of Asia. Now, if you're still in Galatians, look over at chapter 4. And in verses 12 to 15, we find that Paul had personally brought the gospel to the cities of this Roman province. Chapter 4, verse 12, look at what he says. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So he, he personally brought the gospel to these, these believers, and they welcomed him and they loved him very much. The book of Acts records for us when Paul first did this. So uh, turn over to Acts, and we're starting in chapter 13. In Acts 13, Luke recounts for us Paul's first missionary journey. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. Acts 13, verse 1. Now there were at Antioch. Antioch was Paul's home base, basically. That was the church he was a part of. He always came back to Antioch. There were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. That's Paul. Verse 2, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them away. And you can look at those maps to see which way they went. But if you drop down to verse 14, we are told that he arrived at Pisidian Antioch. He says, going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Pisidian Antioch was a city in the province of Galatia. So that's, that's when Paul first set foot in Galatia as a missionary sent by God. At the end of chapter 13, we're told that Paul and Barnabas were driven by persecution out of the city of Pisidian Antioch. And verse 1 of chapter 14 says that they came to another Galatian city. Verse, verse 1, In Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. 
Now drop down to verse 5. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lycaonia, Lystra and Derbe. Two more Galatian cities, Lystra and Derbe, and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So we see here that persecution is driving Paul and Barnabas throughout these other cities of Galatia. And in verses 8 through 20, we're given a zoomed-in view of, of what that looked like, how Paul moved when persecution came. And after getting stoned outside the city of Lystra, Paul went to the last Galatian city that he would visit during that first missionary journey, the city of Derby. So we're told in verse 6 that Paul and Barnabas went to Lystra and Derby. Verse 8 on through 20 tells us what happened in Lystra. And then Paul gets stoned in verse 19. Then look at verse 20. While the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day, he went away with Barnabas to Derby. And Derby was the last city of Galatia they went on that, that first missionary journey. But they didn't just immediately leave the province. Instead, they turned around and they started going back through the, the very same cities that they had just been visiting and preaching the gospel in, the cities that they had just been driven by persecution from. They're coming back to, to hit up those disciples again. Look at uh, verse 21. After they had preached the gospel to that city, the city of Derby, and had med, made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So what do we see here in chapters 13 and 14? We see that Paul and Barnabas had successfully planted churches in the cities of this Roman province of Galatia. And Paul, he didn't not ever visit them again. No, he, he made his way through those cities in the second missionary journey and in the third missionary journey. He, he revisited those churches in Galatia. Now, there's a, a couple of theories regarding when Paul wrote the letter of, of Galatians. And it's difficult to prove it for sure, but I found the most convincing argument to be the one that said that this letter was written between Paul's first and second missionary journeys. And I'm not going to drag you through the details of those arguments because as we go through the book of Galatians, how you, wherever you land on the dating of the book, it doesn't really change your, how you interpret the book. So I'm not going to bore you with all that. Not that I could recount it to you now. I can't. But it seems that out of all the letters Paul wrote, which we have preserved for us in the scriptures, this letter, the letter to the Galatians, is probably the earliest one he ever wrote. Likely written in 48 AD, after his first missionary journey. And you get a little, a little hint about that back in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul's first missionary journey 
happened, and he's no sooner is he done than he's writing to these people, if that theory is correct, that he wrote that after that first missionary journey. He says in that verse, chapter 1, verse 6, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. So this, this problem that we're going to see in this letter happened very early on after their initial coming to faith. That, but I'm starting to get into why Paul wrote this letter. But before we get into the why or the purpose, we're still on the background here, before we get into the purpose, I want to pause to consider with you the circumstances that surrounded the initial planting of these churches. You saw, as we read through those verses, that at three out of the four Galatian cities Paul went through, we're told that his proclamation of the gospel was met with what? Not just belief, but also persecution, right? We saw that at Pisidian Antioch, chapter 13, verse 50. The Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Same thing happens in Iconium, chapter 14, verse 2. But the Jews who believed stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lycaonia, Lystra, and Derbe. And then in Lystra, chapter 14, verse 19, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. So these, the, the, the proclamation of the gospel was surrounded by persecution. These churches were birthed in the, in the midst of great persecution. And that's significant. Because what was Paul and Barnabas' message to these new believers as they passed back through those cities on their way to the next destination? We read it. Chapter 14, verse 21. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. In other words, he's saying, what you saw me and Barnabas go through, you can expect to go through that yourself. Keep believing, because that's not unexpected. We're going to arrive at the kingdom through many tribulations. So don't despair. Don't forsake the faith. Keep believing. This is not something strange. And in Galatians, we learn that this persecution, it didn't just stay upon Paul and Barnabas. It overflowed into the lives of these new believers. We read it in our call to worship, Galatians 3 and verse 4. What does Paul ask these believers there? He says, did you suffer so many things in vain? So they were suffering. And again, this 
This environment of suffering becomes an important detail when we consider the reason why Paul wrote this letter. So that's the background. Let's head into the purpose. Why did Paul write this letter? What was going on in these churches that made Paul think it necessary to write to them as a whole? Well, when you read through this letter straight through, it becomes very clear what the problem is. False teachers had crept into these churches and they had begun to distort the gospel that Paul had proclaimed to them. So we're going to jump to a few spots in Galatians to to show you that. Look at chapter 1 of Galatians, verse 6. Paul says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a, what kind of gospel? A different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some, here's these false teachers, there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Then look at chapter 4. And verse 17, Paul continues to describe these false teachers. He says, They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. Now, I haven't done an in-depth study on that verse yet, but when Paul says they seek to shut you out, what comes to my mind is this. Paul preached one gospel to them, and they believed They were expecting that they are saved, headed for heaven. But these false teachers come along and they preach a different gospel. So in what sense are they shut out? Well, Paul's gospel was insufficient, which means they're shut out of where? Out of heaven. And now these false teachers want them to seek them for the answers of how to get to heaven. It's in that sense that these false teachers have shut out these believers so that they'll seek them rather than Paul. Now look at chapter 5 and verse 7. Paul says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Well, who's that? The false teachers teaching a false gospel. They are the ones hindering these believers. And then look at verse 12 of chapter 5. Paul says, I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves, cut themselves off. And we're going to see these false teachers were telling these disciples to get circumcised. And we know that when you're circumcised, something is getting cut off. Paul is making a play on words. He's saying, I wish they would cut themselves off and stop bothering you. Now, why were these false teachers doing this? What was the motivation behind them coming in behind Paul and sowing seeds of doubt and proclaiming a different gospel? Well, we we get some insight in chapter 6, verse 12. He says, Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So apparently these false teachers, they had professed faith in Jesus and they're finding that believing that leads to persecution. And that fear has led them to begin to modify the gospel so that they can relieve the pressure of that persecution. And they are coming to these churches and they are presenting that modified gospel. 
Now, what was the modification of the gospel that these false teachers had made? How did they change it from what Paul had taught? Well, they were teaching that in order to be saved, not only did these new Gentile believers need to believe in Jesus, they weren't denying that, but they were teaching that these new believers also needed to perform the work of circumcision and then obey everything that the law of Moses said. In other words, they were teaching these new believers, in essence, that they needed to convert to Judaism. That that this was the change they made to the gospel is clear from the way that Paul reasons throughout the letter. As we go through this letter, we're going to see that Paul emphatically makes the, the point over and over again that the only way to be saved, the only way to be declared righteous, to be justified, is through faith alone in Christ alone. It's not through obedience to the law. It's not through works. And why is it not through that? Because it's impossible for sinners to be justified by the law of God. They fall short. They can't be saved that way. It is only through faith in Christ. We need Jesus to save us. Look at chapter 3 and verse 15 where Paul makes that point. Chapter 3, verse 15, he says, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Oh, wait, that's not the right one. Chapter 2, verse 15. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. He says, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Now, the, the the fact that circumcision was the principal work these false teachers were trying to press upon these new believers is clear from from the following texts. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. He asked them, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, of which one is be circumcised, or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Circumcision is something you do to the flesh. Now jump down to chapter 5. Verse 2, Paul says, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive, what? Circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. Verse, uh, let's go drop down uh, to chapter 6. Verse 12. I already read that one. But we saw there that these false teachers were trying to compel these believers to be what? To be circumcised. Verse 15. 
Neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So that was the, the, the first work that these false teachers were trying to get the Gentiles to do in order to complete their salvation, to ensure their salvation. So what have these false teachers done by modifying the gospel? Well, they have not just made a slight change. They have instead turned the gospel, they have turned the good news into wages to be earned rather than a free gift to be received. That is what they have done. Now again, why why would these false teachers modify the gospel in that way? Well, remember, they were afraid of what? Of being persecuted, right? But why change it this way? Why not change it a different way to avoid persecution? Why say you need to get circumcised? You need to do what the law of Moses says. Well, when we looked at Acts, who was doing most of the persecuting of Paul in the cities of Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? Who was stirring it up? You remember? It was the Jews, right? The Jews. And what do you think would be a great way to avoid being persecuted by Jews? By simply saying, I'm just making more Jews. I'm, I'm getting them circumcised. Look, I'm, I'm getting them to fall, follow the law of Moses. That's how you avoid getting persecuted by Jews, right? Paul himself says that back in Galatians. Look at what he says in chapter 5 and verse 11. Apparently, these false teachers were maybe suggesting that their modification really wasn't different from Paul, that he believed what they believed, and Paul's defending himself here, it appears, against that false charge. Chapter 5, verse 11, But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. So a part of what was offensive to the Jews about this gospel that Paul was preaching was that Paul was saying you could be saved without requiring circumcision. The offense of the gospel is that it says you're a sinner, you cannot save yourself, you need a savior to die for you in order to be saved. Well, what do you do to that offense when you add works to the gospel? Well, it blunts that offense, doesn't it? Because it implies that you're really not that bad. You can contribute to this saving work that God is doing. You can, uh, by your works, earn favor from God. So that's where these false teachers were coming from. At least in part, their motivation of twisting the gospel was due to their fear of man, and specifically their fear of the Jews. So that's the false teachers. But what about the, these churches, these new believers? How did they respond to that false teaching that had come into their churches? How did they respond when these false teachers came behind Paul and said, yeah, you need to believe in Jesus, but you're not really saved until you get circumcised and follow everything the law of Moses said? Did they reject that message? No, they were entertaining it. They were entertaining that false gospel. That's why Paul says in chapter 1, verse 6, I am amazed at how quickly you are deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. And there's several other references that point out to this fact that they are entertaining this false gospel that is being 
shared with them. And how does Paul feel about this? Does he just say, that's no big deal. I'm just going to let it ride. You know, I don't really have to cause waves by contradicting what these people are saying. No, he is deeply concerned. Why is he deeply concerned? He's deeply concerned because you cannot experience final salvation if you do not persevere in believing in the gospel. If you start believing in a false gospel, that is, if you start resting one foot on the work that Jesus did for you, and you start resting another foot on the work that you do in order to be saved, you have lost the gospel. You cannot be saved if you're mixing your works with the work of Christ as the basis of your salvation. Paul warns them very severely about this. It's worth reading again. Chapter 5, verse 2. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. And it's not just the physical act of getting circumcised, right? If it was that case, when the doctor asked me about my sons, do you want them circumcised? I would say, no, how could you ask me such a thing? I don't want to cut them off from heaven. No, it's, that's not the point. He's telling them to not get circumcised because he knows they would do it in order to earn salvation. That's the issue here. And Paul's he is deeply concerned that they are being tempted and they're seriously considering whether or not they should put themselves under the law in order to earn salvation. So that's just a brief snapshot of what this letter is all about. And we're going to go much deeper into it as we go along. But now let's, let's turn to the application. Why are we, the church here in New Woodstock, going to work our way through this letter? What's the point of coming here and spending a good amount of time going through this? Well, there's two things that, that jump out at me. I'm sure we'll come across more as we go through this. But the first reason why we are going to work through this letter together is so that we may keep believing the one true gospel. The gospel is our lifeblood. We must always take care to maintain our stand here on the gospel and never move away from it. And what is the gospel? I've got 30 seconds to live and you have to share the gospel with me. What would you say? What is the gospel? That I'm a sinner, I'm under the wrath of God, I have fallen short of his, his righteousness, I am headed for hell, but God has made a way for sinners to be saved. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfectly righteous life, something that I have not done. And though he lived a perfectly righteous life, he went to the cross where he died. He sacrificed himself to pay for the sins of sinners like you and me. And having made that payment, he died and then he rose from the dead, showing that God accepted the payment that he made. And now, this, this good news that Jesus died for sinners and rose from the dead is being proclaimed to everyone, and God's free gift of salvation is extended to you. And how do you receive that free gift? It's not by doing works. You can't earn it. You receive it through faith 
and Jesus Christ. That's the gospel that we must always take our stand on. This is the only way. There is no other way to be saved. It's a narrow way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, that very narrow way. Now, there are two ditches that lie on either side of this narrow way. And we have to always be mindful of these two ditches. One ditch is the ditch of legalism. It's the ditch of lawfulness. It's the ditch of thinking, I have to keep law in order to earn a part of my salvation. The other ditch on the other side is the ditch of antinomianism. Anti, against Namas, law, against law, lawlessness. That's the other ditch. The ditch of thinking that once I've been saved, I can live any way I want. I have license to sin. Doesn't matter. That's the other ditch. Well, as we go through this letter to the Galatians, we're going to find that this letter guards us from falling into both of those ditches. In chapters 3 through chapter 5, verse 12, Paul shows us why salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. He shows us that when you start depending upon your works to earn favor from God, you've lost the gospel and you stand condemned. Then in, in chapter 5, verse 13, through chapter 6, verse 10, Paul keeps us from the other ditch. He exhorts us to never think that the gospel gives us a license to sin. He tells us that those who live in unrepentant, habitual sin are deceived and that they can be certain they are not going to heaven. And those are two ditches that we can fall into. And if you think that you are too wise, too holy, too smart to do that, you are kidding yourself. How do I know that? Because of what we read in Galatians chapter 2. Verses 11 through 14. What do we read there? But when Cephas, who is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Why does he stand condemned? This is Peter. Verse 12. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews, the Jewish believers, joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? What had Peter fallen into there? Well, Peter had begun to act like salvation was by works rather than by faith. Because what did he start doing? He started to treat the believing Gentiles like they were still unclean, even though they had already been cleansed by faith. By starting to take a step back, he started to treat them like they were unclean when they weren't, which implied... They need to get themselves clean before I'm going to associate with them. And it's shocking what Paul says about Peter in verse 11. He stood condemned. This is Peter. 
Peter, the one who made that great confession of faith to Jesus. Remember, you don't have to turn there, but Matthew 16, verse 16, Peter declared, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then what did Jesus say to him? Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. This is the same Peter whom God used to first proclaim the gospel to the Jews on the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 people were saved. This is the same Peter whom God used to first proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles when he entered Cornelius' house, and the Holy Spirit fell upon all who had heard the gospel that he had preached. Why did Peter ever go into that Gentile's house? Because God had given him a vision And three times God showed him that what God has made clean, Peter should not consider unclean. And yet here we are in Galatians chapter 2 when Peter is treating these believers like they're unclean. If Peter could temporarily lose his footing on the gospel, make no mistake about it that you and I can as well if we do not keep a careful watch over our life and our doctrine. So we need this letter just as much today as those Galatians did almost 2,000 years ago. So that's the first reason why we're coming to this letter, so that we may keep believing the one true gospel. The second reason why we're coming to this letter is so that we may keep proclaiming the one true gospel. That we may keep proclaiming the one true gospel. Remember why the false teachers had come into the Galatian churches proclaiming a false gospel. What was it because of? They were afraid, right, of being persecuted. Instead of wanting to please God, who were they seeking to please? Men, right? Why did Peter, why did Peter start acting all different toward the Gentile believers? Why did he stop being straightforward about the gospel? What did it say in chapter 2, verse 12? The end of the verse, he was what? Yeah, fearing, fearing the party of the circumcision. The fear of man inevitably corrupts the gospel that we preach. The fear of man leads us to either not preach it at all, or it leads us to water it down, to add things to it or take things away from it in order to make it less offensive to the unbelievers we're speaking with. And Paul delivers an absolute scorching warning to those who would preach a different gospel. Chapter 1, verse 11. Or no, not that verse. Where am I? Verse 8. Chapter 1, verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be, what? Accursed. Accursed. The fear of man, it's a sin that I myself am constantly needing to repent of and ask God's forgiveness for. I'm continually needing to seek God's strengthening grace. I'm continually needing to ask him to help me trust him more, love him more, fear him more, so that I will be faithful 
to deliver the gospel in all its purity to those who need to hear it. I'll close with just another personal illustration. I was still uh, in college, working on my undergraduate degree, and on the summer of, I think it was my sophomore year, I was doing an internship at an environmental engineering company. And I had worked pretty closely with this gentleman in that company for the the whole summer. And he was an unbeliever, but he was very open to talking. But I was so afraid to share the gospel that I went the whole summer without making the most of the opportunities that were given to me. And it came down to the very last day of my internship. And I was feeling convicted, you know, feeling guilty about not having shared the gospel with him. And we we had lunch together. And the Lord just lobbed me a, a softball, you know, two miles an hour right over the plate. Because this coworker, he said, he, he talked about death. And it was just a golden opportunity for me to come in and say, you know, the Lord has made a way for us so we don't have to fear death anymore. Did I take that opportunity? No. I just kept my mouth shut, and it just went by. And so I sat in my cubicle after that lunch. I was just overwhelmed with conviction that I had not shared the gospel with this man. I feared this man so much, which was really just me loving myself so much that I was unwilling to share with him. And it came down to the final hour of the day, and I was praying, thinking, how do I... How do I make this right? And my coworker got up out of his cubicle and was leaving. He was leaving. He was leaving work for the day. And I was just under immense conviction. And so, by God's grace, I got up and I followed him into the parking lot. And my heart was pounding because I'd never done anything like this before. And I stopped him at his truck and shared the gospel with him. And he said something to me like, you know, you should be careful about what you say to people in a workplace environment. And I I said, yeah, but I have to not fear man. And then I left, and I was shaking like a leaf. Why did I go out there? It wasn't because I wasn't afraid anymore. It was because I had a reverence for God that finally outweighed my fear of man. That's why, finally, I went out. And I still stumble in this every day. But we have to be careful of the fear of man. It's, it, it'll distort the gospel that we believe and that we proclaim. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, this book of Galatians that you've privileged us to begin to work through together. Lord, uh, there's so much that, that we're going to gain from, from working through this, seeing what you have led Paul to write. And we pray that you'd prepare our hearts for it. Lord, we pray that the gospel would become all the more beautiful uh, in our sight, that we would become all the more committed to it, that we would take a firm stand upon it like we never have before, uh, and that we would be faithful in sharing it as you give opportunity. Uh, We don't always have to go out into the parking lot to to bring someone the gospel. Um, That's not what I intended to teach, but it was just an example you put opportunities before us every day. And if we're afraid of man, we won't take, the, we won't take that opportunity. So, Lord, help us 
uh, mortify the sin of, of the fear of man in us as we go through this, this letter together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.